Greetings, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Stuff We Love podcast. For this episode, Scott and I will continue our discussion of the Beatles' career, paying particular attention to the album's Magical Mystery Tour, the Beatles, more commonly known as the White Album, Yellow Submarine, Let It Be, and Abbey Road. As always, we will conclude with our popular Stuff We Love segment. Let's meet the hosts. I'm Dan. And I'm Scott. And you're listening to the Stuff We Love podcast. Welcome to Stuff We Love podcast. The Stuff We Love podcast is sponsored by Autoslash. Autoslash is a website that you visit if you are either interested in renting a car or already have rented a car, but would like to save money on that car rental. Dan, I have to tell you, when I've rented cars in the past, I always had a bad feeling that I was overpaying for the car rental. Ask anyone that has rented a car on recent vacations, and they will always say that the car rental cost was the most surprisingly high expense of their trip. When I first heard about Autoslash and how they can save you a ton of money on your next car rental, I must admit I was skeptical. After all, there are so many car rental companies out there with so much competition. How can the average person know they are getting a good deal? Well, I'm here to tell you that Autoslash saved me $200 on my next car rental. We chose Autoslash to be our first podcast sponsor because we love to travel and feel that renting a car enhances the vacation experience. We do not want to overpay for car rentals, and therefore we feel very strongly that Autoslash is a wonderful way to save you money on the car rentals. Autoslash will keep you posted on any better deals they find in advance of your trip. So in other words, if you book a car rental reservation, you input that information on Autoslash's website and they track it for you. So if a better deal comes along, they will email you as your trip approaches. Facebook reviews about Autoslash. This is a fantastic service that in a few short minutes found a lower price than what took me hours of searching and trying coupon codes. And then tracked that reservation and found every lower price a few days before the trip. I ended up saving hundreds of dollars. Visit them at autoslash.com and save money on your next car rental. And Dan, I just want to say that Facebook review kind of sums up everything that this is all about. Saving money on your trip and then after that initial car rental reservation, Autoslash tracking it for you and then saving you even more money. Yeah, it really is an incredible uh, site, Scott. I um, have two trips coming up. Uh, the end of June, I'm going uh, to, uh, to Kentucky mm. to uh, visit family out there. Nice. And um, in October, I'm going to visit my cousin out in South Beach in Miami. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, I used Autoslash to book a, a car for both, both trips. Really? And, um, yeah, and saved a ton of money. Um, I was doing some research uh, you know, independently. Every website that I went to uh, for my trip at the end of June, flying into Cincinnati, had me at $401, $415 to rent a car for the week. Um, I got it on Autoslash for $240. Wow. It's a great, great site. Yeah, you know, I rent cars on almost every vacation I take, and uh, I will always use Autoslash because it's a pretty much a guaranteed, to save, guaranteed way to save money on your car rental. So that's awesome, man. Awesome. Good yeah. stuff. Great vacations, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to them. You got to come back on and do trip reports. I'll definitely do trip reports. Yeah, uh, love traveling as well. So talking about traveling, it's always always a good time. For sure, for sure. So Dan, you're joining us again tonight to talk about the Beatles, a small band known as the Beatles. Yes, just a little band. You know, John always <laughs> said they were just a little band. Just They're a little just band. Four guys, you know, who made together. it very, very big. That's all. They made it very, very big. That's all. Yep. Uh, we've watched a lot of Beatles documentaries. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> but um, Dan and I have been talking over the course of several episodes about the Beatles' career, focusing on certain albums each episode. And tonight we're going to continue with that trend. Uh, before we get to that, Dan, I actually just thought of a question I want to ask you before we get into the Magical Mystery Tour album. 
Uh, how do you listen to the Beatles nowadays? What's the primary way? Is it through streaming music, physical music? What's what's the uh, go-to way most of the time that you listen? It depends on uh, on where I am. So if I'm uh, on the go, it's it's through you know my iPhone. So what I have downloaded on there, um, I'm listening to that in the car. I'm listening to that at the gym, wherever I'm at. Um, if I'm home, it's usually on vinyl. Mm-hmm. So you you go to vinyl more than the CD. Uh, I tend to now, yeah. I yes. kind of feel like that's hearing it the way it was meant to be heard. Right, right. I agree. I, I, I do listen to vinyl more than CDs now. I know that CDs technically may give you a better sound, but there's nothing like the sound of vinyl, especially for the Beatles. I find it to be just tremendous. Yeah, it's um, it's an incredible experience. I feel like you know we get to kind of hear it um, the way it was first heard. Right. And, and you know I think for fans like us, that's important. It is. It definitely is. Uh, so, Dan, where we left off on our last Beatles episode, the Beatles had released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It came out in the summer of, it was June 1967, to be precise. Uh, this album was a major success, was the defining album of what's now known as the Summer of Love. And uh, the Beatles were on top of the world. And they performed on a global, speaking of worlds, they performed on a global special and sang the uh, now legendary song, All You Need Is Love, on a tremendous broadcast that showed them sitting there in all their psychedelic gear surrounded by people like uh, Mick Jagger, Marianne Faithful, and a bunch of others that were in the audience that night. So at this point of the Beatles career, uh, in the height of psychedelia, they went and did something that they had not done before. They had, of course, been in several motion pictures, A Hard Day's Night and Help. But now what the Beatles did was go and film a movie that was going to air in the United Kingdom on Boxing Day, which is December 26th, the day after Christmas. This film is known as Magical Mystery Tour. This was Paul's idea. This was the first project that the band embarked on after the death of their manager, Brian Epstein, who died as a very young man, unfortunately, from what appears to have been a drug overdose. There were... There have always been rumors it was a suicide, but all indications point to a drug overdose. And Paul encouraged them to get back out there and work on this Magical Mystery Tour project. So what they did was they went with a bunch of other performers and people uh, on a bus, literally labeled Magical Mystery Tour, and drove across England and filmed their adventures. Uh, and the album Magical Mystery Tour was released in conjunction with the film. The film got terrible reviews. It did not do well uh, critically, although it aired on TV in black and white when a movie like that at the height of the psychedelic period really should have been viewed in color. But it got bad reviews, but the soundtrack album is absolutely tremendous and features several new songs that came out around that time. It also included Strawberry Fields Forever, Penny Lane, All You Need Is Love, and Baby You're a Rich Man, which were songs that were recorded around that time. Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane having been recorded at the start of the Sgt. Pepper sessions. So, Dan, let me uh, begin our Magical Mystery Tour discussion by asking you just to give us your overall thoughts on this release and where it ranks for you in the Beatles catalog. I always thought of Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a natural follow-up to, to Pepper. goes a little bit deeper into psychedelia um, than Pepper did. Um, I think at this time, you know, you had a lot of lot of bands that were kind of in that mode. Some were were uh, more successful than others, but you um, you had a lot of new new bands that were coming out that were kind of taking that psychedelic sound and going a little bit further. So you had early Floyd that was coming out at that time. I think Piper at the Gates of Dawn was released maybe in August or September around there. Right. You had Procol Harum who had a big hit with Wider Shade of Pale um, that was on the charts. 
And all of that was kind of starting to, you know, uh, the, the Beatles were starting to get into this, this cycle of being influenced by people they had influence and then vice versa. There is a lot of this influence going on. So the, um, the tracks on Magical Mystery Tour, to me, kind of represent more of a deeper delve into the psychedelic sound. Mm-hmm. And, and definitely you hear that on tracks like, uh, like Blue Jay Way, mm-hmm. um, I Am the Walrus. But that, that comes out very, uh, even Flying, which is, you know, one of the few Beatles instrumentals out there, which I love flying. I love to, uh, to listen to that, uh, especially driving in the car. That's yeah. a fun little track. It's a good driving um, song. It's a good driving song. But um, it's, it's definitely a, a solid follow-up, mainly, I think, because of the fact that it does feature a lot of singles on the second side. of The B, the B side of the album mm-hmm. was all singles that had been released either prior uh, to Pepper, in the case of, of uh, Penny Lane and um, Strawberry Fields, or immediately after. So that was uh, All You Need Is Love is on there, mm-hmm. um, Baby You're a Rich Man is on there, Hello Goodbye. Right. Um, it was the B side, I think, to I Am the Walrus, or the it was yes. double A side, or was it a B yeah, side? It may have been a double A sided single. I, I'm not sure about that, but it, I have to I have to go back into like things John was snarky about <laughs> regarding right. singles around this time. Uh, so I'm not sure if that uh, right. was one that he had gotten a little miffed about. I think it might have been the B side, right? I right. think. Well, uh, you know, Dan, uh, I agree with everything you're saying completely. For me, a track that has always stood out on that album and is probably my favorite is The Fool on the Hill. Uh, I think because I love the uh, the video that went along with it of Paul sort of roaming around the countryside. I also love his vocal on that song. It's such a pure, clean vocal with great imagery. It's like you're, I love the image of A Fool on the Hill. Mm-hmm sees the world spinning around. I just, I, I find it to be very poetic. And you, you contrast that with something like I am the, Wal-. so I flew on the hills of Paul song. I am the walrus is a John song. And there's such differences between the two, but they kind of work together well in sort of that psychedelic overall uh, canon, for lack of a better phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, so those have always stood out for me. I also really like blue Jay way. I got to tell you the, uh, I, I just, I'm drawn to that. I love the sound of that track. Uh, and you're right. The fact that you have tracks like Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane and, and so forth really helps enhance the overall album. Uh, I guess, you know, it's interesting because I think in I'm not sure I'm right about this, but I believe in the United Kingdom when Magical Mystery Tour was released, it was released just as an EP. And the album had tracks one through seven and it ended with Hello, Goodbye. But then when it was released in the United States, I believe that's when you had got the other songs included. And now that's sort of the universal type of release. Yeah, to say. it's the one um, the one album in the, the what is, I guess, the preferred Beatles canon. Mm-hmm. That is a U.S. release rather than a, um, a U.K. release. Right. And um, it was released as an EP in the U.K. Um, because standard album practice in the United Kingdom was um, singles did not go on an album. Um, right. They were two separate entities. So rarely did you find a single placed on an album, which is why, uh, you, you know, you didn't see, you know, I want to hold your hand on on with the Beatles or right. something like that. You know? um, so it was kept very separate in the U.S. The, you know, the, the singles were on the album because um, generally here uh, before the Beatles came along and the British invasion albums were made up of a couple of hit singles and then filler tracks, mm-hmm. you know, mostly. Um, so for the release of Magical Mystery Tour, you had the British EP backed with 
um, singles that were added to the album to get it to sell. And that's become the preferred release, the, the U.S. release of uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Do you like so. the film Magical Mystery Tour? I do. I I, I like it. It's, it's one of those things. There's a lot with the Beatles. I think sometimes you have to t- take it for what it is and you have to look at it at, you know, for the time period, what they're doing. It's music videos before there were music videos. Right. Interspersed with just them having fun and like strange little odd scenes. And it almost plays like an early, like an early Python movie in yeah. a way. I see that. Um, yeah. It's very kind of that there's no real plot it's these like kind of disjointed moments that fit together but it, if you're looking at it as just kind of like fun it's fun and you get to see these performances of i am the walrus and um you know the great video for um fool on the hill yes um and it introduced me to the bonzo dog doodah band i love that um, yeah. <laughs> so you know you i i probably never would have uh, found out who they were and gotten to hear some of their stuff which is some fun stuff if it weren't for a magical mystery tour. And um, there'd be no uh, death cab for cutie. True. If it wasn't for a magical mystery tour and uh, you know, the, the performance by uh, the, the Bonzo dog do not band in that, in that film. Yeah. You know, the, the movie has grown on me. The more I've seen it a couple of years ago, the film was celebrating its 50th anniversary and I attended a panel discussion on the movie followed by a screening of the film. And it was always, it was kind of interesting to me. Uh, some of the people in the audience that weren't really that familiar with what Magical Mystery Tour was, you could tell were not enjoying it at all. And we're thinking, what is this? I, I can't believe this is the Beatles. This is so strange. I really like it. I think it's a perfect length. It's not a long film. It probably comes in between 60 and 70 minutes. I think if it was longer than that, I would probably start to lose a little patience with it. But like you just said, it really, for the most part, is a collection of music videos. And uh, you have these great performances interspersed by skits that have really grown on me. I like those scenes. Mm. I like the interaction of the Beatles with the people on the bus. I find it to be a fun movie. Not as fun as A Hard Day's Night and not as fun as Help. But if you want to have fun for an hour and put it on, it's a good thing to do. And I'll leave it at that for me. (laughs) So Magical Mystery Tour, the album for me, is certainly up there in the Beatles catalog. I like it. At times, it's I even go to it more than Sergeant Pepper's in a way, if that makes any sense. It, it has a good balance of kind of the kind of edgier, darker psychedelia, and you know the lighter stuff that that Pepper is very light and airy yes. and sunny, and um, Magical Mystery Tour is more kind of leaning towards if Pepper is a really good trip, you know, um, Magical Mystery Tour is leaning towards the like the the badder trip, in a way. Dan, I completely agree, and I've never heard it phrased that way, but I think that does sum it up perfectly, how Magical Mystery Tour was the edge of your release. And I think a perfect example of that is you would never find a track like I Am the Walrus on Pepper, just like you would never find a track like When I'm 64 on Magical Mystery Tour, although your mother should know does kind of fit into that general uh, rubric of song, but you wouldn't find, I, I couldn't see, for example, Lovely Read on Magical Mystery Tour. No. So yeah. it's interesting how that worked out uh, yeah, with, we're, with those releases. It's, it's we're starting to see, um, you know, the, there's there's Magical Mystery Tour also is is a good place to start for this because we're not, you know, we're talking about the breakup years. And this is where we're heading into the breakup years, and Magical Mystery Tour, both the film and the album, are where we start to see the divides that are going to lead to the breakup. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film wise, you know, that was kind of. Paul, 
you know, after Brian, uh, Brian Epstein had passed, which you mentioned before, the Beatles were kind of in a state of limbo for a little bit because there was like, well, what do we do now? Um, he had been such a guiding force for them. They really didn't have to worry about much as right. far as, you know, they made the music and they were cre- the, the creative, uh, you know, um, unit and Brian took care of everything else. And now he was gone and it was like, well, what do we, what do we do? Paul, to his credit, was the one who stepped up and was like, well, we're going to keep going. And, you know, he kept pushing them to this is the project. This is what we're going to work on. We're going to do this. And, and that caused some resentment mm-hmm. uh, with John. And, and after a while, as things progress, which we will talk about later with, with George. Um, and I, I forget what, what, I don't know if it was a, on the anthology or some, um, it might've been the, uh, the George Harrison documentary that Scor- Martin Scorsese did, um, a few years back, the, uh, living in the material was living in the material world. Yes. Where Ringo said, that, you know, they would be slacking off somewhere, uh, you know, hanging out, slacking off and the phone would ring and they'd be like, Oh no, it's Paul. He's going to make us work again. <laughs> right. Because he was the one that was kind of the driving force. Right. John always said magical mystery tour was kind of his baby because he was the one that he kind of directed it. Cause he was the one that was, you know, this is what we're going to do today. Right. And, you know, pushing them to do it on the album. You're starting to see this division between, you know, John's stuff and Paul's stuff. Right. Right. So you've got John with, I am the walrus. Paul putting to, putting out that and Paul's production is picking up extensively. You know, we're seeing more and more Paul songs yes. on albums. So most of that, I mean, magical mystery tour, fool on the hill, your mother should know uh, hello. Goodbye. Right. Penny lane, Penny lane are all Paul tracks, right? I am the walrus uh, is, is, is John. Right. Um, all you need is love is John. Uh, but you're seeing kind of a division that's starting to happen. And songs like, your mother should know, which I love. Your mother should know. It's one of my favorite yes. um, Beatles uh, tracks. Start to get lumped in in a category of songs that John started to refer to. He uses another word, but as <laughs> Paul's granny crap. Yeah, you know, um, which he would lump "Obladi Oblada" into, and "Martha, my dear," and Maxwell Silver Hammer was the big one sure. that he would complain about. This is Paul's granny crap you know, that we're going to do. So we start to see that that's starting to happen on Magical Mystery Tour. And it's kind of the um, kind of omen of where we're going yes. in the next couple of albums. And Yeah, you know, the death of Brian Epstein is such a point of significance in the Beatles history. It, it could have, you could have a, write a book about the impact of that on the group in so many ways. And it's possible had he lived that the troubles that now would arrive for the Beatles and the tensions in the group, he maybe would have been able to navigate them. Uh, and you would never have had the introduction of somebody like Alan Klein, who came in much later down the road, who uh, was brought in to be their manager and caused a rift between Paul and the other members of the group. All that would never have happened. So uh, the death of Brian was very, very significant. But overall, I do like Magical Mystery Tour uh, for what it is, uh, which is a, a highlight from the from a period of psychedelia in the world's history. And mm-hmm. I find that with Sgt. Pepper to be sort of great bookends to this 1967 period. 
And it's also for me, I always kind of look at it as the mustache period. <laughs> you know, that the time. mustache. <laughs> the mustache see, period. For the most part, if you see the Beatles having mustaches, it, it, it chances are it's from 1967. It's not always the case, but chances <laughs> are it's from 1967. From 1967. So now we're continuing down the Beatles' career. Uh, by the way, Dan, Hey Jude Revolution, was that, that was released prior to the White Album or after? That was um, re- that was released prior. It was recorded during the uh, White Album sessions, though. Right. Yeah, to get to the White Album from, and you know what? It's it's kind of incredible. We talked earlier in in um, our earlier discussions about the drastic change in sound. Yes. From year to year, sixty four to sixty five. So you know the sixty three, sixty four releases, and how much different they sounded from the. 65 releases into 66 yes and it's amazing to me and it's not just i not just with the beatles but the stones too Mm -hmm. the uh but they were kind of picking up at this point um kind of following the beatles and the change of sound from where we leave off with magical mystery tour Mm -hmm. um to where we're going to end up with the white album that happens in the matter of months right because before we get to the White Album, we're looking at um, Lady Madonna, mm-hmm. right, and um, the Inner Light, and right. the change in sound from this edgier, the edgier psychedelia of Magical Mystery Tour to the Lady Madonna single mm-hmm. is it's like night and day. Yes, and now we're getting back to kind of more of a rockier, rootsier sound. It's it's very true. I, I look at Lady Madonna and the sound on that as sort of this. I think there's a few musical influences going on there. You have a jazz influence, you have an R&B influence, rock influence, of course. But the Paul's piano playing on that alone is so different and out, and out of nowhere compared to what the Beatles had been releasing musically prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Inner Light uh, is, I think, for some people, not one of their favorite Beatles songs. It may not be as catchy as a lot of the other songs that came out there. But I would argue that uh, from an instrumental perspective, it's very beautiful. The use of the sitar on there uh, is quite uh, hypnotic, if, if, for lack of a better word. It kind of draws you in. Uh, and I think provi- that single, Lady Madonna, backed with Inner Light, provides a nice transition for the Beatles fans in retrospect as they go from something like Magical Mystery Tour, a full-on psychedelic album, into something like the White Album, which has is certainly not a psychedelic album, and is more for I guess you could say it's kind of a back to basics album in terms mm-hmm. of a lot of what they had been releasing. Dan and I uh, have previously talked about the White Album extensively on a whole episode devoted to the fiftieth release of that fiftieth anniversary of that album and the re-release that came out back in 2018 so for a full-on white album discussion you could go back and listen to that episode uh dan for purposes of this episode uh, we shouldn't go through the whole album again because we've done that but let's just say a few words uh, just going over again our thoughts on the album and i don't think we covered in the previous episode uh, the hey jude revolution single and i would like to talk about that with you Mm -hmm. yeah i think um that's definitely something that we could focus on more here, why don't, why don't we, we start with that, actually? Why don't we start with Hey Jude Revolution? Because it is one of the most important singles in rock and roll history. So do you want to give a little bit of background about uh, the, the song Hey Jude and how that came to be? Well, the song Hey Jude uh, comes out of what was happening in, in, in John's personal life at the time. So in 1966, 
um, December of 66, um, he met Yoko Ono at the Indica Gallery. They had been talking um, and in touch with each other. Um, I guess it started on a plutonic level, artists who respected each other, and it started to morph into a more romantic relationship. Yoko, uh, actually the first uh, Beatles session that Yoko is present at is um, the session for Lady Madonna and Hey Bulldog. I didn't know that. Uh, Yeah, she's present at that session for the first time, and that was recorded right before the Beatles went to India. John was really uh, kind of self-conscious that it was such a poppy uh, recording um, or poppy songs that she was present at for the first, her first time in the studio with the Beatles. And afterwards, we know she would be um, almost constantly present in the studio, um, much to the chagrin of uh, the rest of the band, as well as uh, Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall. That relationship had turned into a romantic relationship and led to John's divorce from his wife, his first wife, Cynthia. Um, Paul was driving out to visit Cynthia and John's son, Julian. And um, on his way out, kind of came up with this little song that he was writing uh, uh, for Julian called uh, Hey Jules, uh, kind of to kind of comfort him about what was going on with you know, his parents and, and that situation. And um, as Paul says, uh, he liked the song a lot and um, changed Jules to, to Jude because it sounded better. John liked it, and uh, they set about recording it in the, uh, in the session for the White Albums. It's um, a, a, a game changer for singles because it clocks in at over seven minutes long, Right, which was kind of a, uh, that didn't happen a lot in, uh, in the 60s. You know, it was, uh, at, to that point, I think it was like, three minutes and five seconds was like where you, they wanted you to be. Um, some started to tick towards the four minute mark, but that was too long. Um, and this and is you, double, this is double. This is double so, that. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, and then if you went over that, you, you started to have a fight with the, uh, the record company about cutting the song down. Right. Hey, Judas is, is clocks in it over seven minutes. Most of which is the fade out. Right. Um, of, the of famous the famous na, na, na part for those right. that, uh, and also, um, it's another track where we start to see, you know, uh, the the seeds of division being sown. Because um, as they were recording, and at this point, uh, Paul started to get really, really particular about his songs and how he wanted them to go. There were songs that he would make them play to death. Uh, Obla de Obla da is one famous one. Mm-hmm. Actually, one where, where John kind of shaped the sound of it. Um, it's an interesting story behind that. But um, yes. he started to come in with his, uh, you know, with his songs kind of mapped out. And this is what I want you to play. And uh, this is how the drums are going to go and how the bass is going to go and the piano is going to go. And, um, and George, who had started to really get back into his guitar playing at this point after really focusing on the sitar and Indian music, um, had spent some time um, hanging out with uh, the band in Woodstock and Robbie Robertson and kind of studying that kind of guitar style, hanging out with Eric Clapton, right. uh, wanted to play these kind of bluesy lead guitar figures um, and kind of a call of response to Paul's vocal. And, um, and Paul did not want that and kind of told George, you know, no, that's not, that's not how this song goes. You know, right. we're not playing guitar all the way through it. And that kind of miffed George a bit um, so much so that it comes up again in, in, in the fight that they have in the let it be sessions. Right. Um, 
So that happened during Hey Jude. So we're starting to see that kind of divide um, happen within the band. But um, incredible song, probably one of uh, the Beatles' greatest tracks um, in the top 10 and revolutionized singles because it was one of the first singles to clock in at over seven minutes and not be cut down for right. release. It's a very beautiful song. And I think when you listen to terrestrial radio now, the classic rock stations, it is one of the top three to five Beatles songs that they play along with Come Together and a couple of other tracks. I've always been a fan of this song. I love the lyrics. I love the story it tells. I, I enjoy Paul's vocal on it. I find the na-na-na part to be mesmerizing from start to finish. And it's a great track. I will say this. My only complaint is that it's everywhere now. Paul has been touring now for years and years. It's at every concert. He has to do it every time he performs. Mm -hmm. If somebody goes to see hey Jude, see Paul live and he doesn't sing Hey Jude, that's not a good thing. Uh, I am a little bit tired of it. So it's not surprisingly for me personally, one of my go-to Beatles tracks. I'm actually much more likely to listen to Lovely Rita than I am Hey Jude, to be honest with you, mm -hmm. just because I've heard Hey Jude so many times. But there's no doubt it is an artistic achievement. And Dan, as you said, it was a total game changer by way of singles because you never heard songs that long being played on the radio before. And uh, it's it's definitely one of the most... For a band that is so well-known as the Beatles, where every one of their songs is known by millions and millions of people, Hey Jude may be the number one most known song. So it really is amazing. And the B-side... Was that a double A-side single? The, the hey no, Revolution. Um, no, Revolution was the B-side. Revolution was the B-side. I believe, I believe it was the B-side because um, I think John was fighting to get Revolution on the A-side. Yeah. Um, and that, that didn't pan out. For any other band, Revolution would be an A-side single and maybe be the best song they would have ever done. But for the Beatles, it was relegated to a uh, to a B-side. But it is, for me, one of their best tracks. I prefer Revolution over Hey Jude, just personally speaking. A Revolution, from a sonic perspective, is completely different than Hey Jude. Hey Jude it starts as a piano-based ballad. Uh, you, you do have other instruments, of course, being played on there. Uh, but Revolution is just a hard electric rocker and uh, opens with a loud guitar played by George back with a nice uh, drum introduction by Ringo. And then you get into John's vocal. And he's basically commenting on the political tensions that were present at this time, 1968, of course, we look back on that now as a year of tremendous turmoil around the world. I mean, here in the United States, you had America's involvement in the Vietnam War causing strife on the home front. You had many young American men losing their lives in Vietnam. You had the assassinations of RFK and Martin Luther King. I mean, there's a lot of political tension in the world today. Uh, 1968 is one of those other years that we look at as being an example of a a time filled with uh, a lot of agony and a lot of uh, friction in society. And Revolution was sort of a commentary on that. It's a very interesting track, but it's insanely catchy for a heavy, heavy song. It's got a great melody and just full of driving energy. I love it. It's, uh, it's one of my favorite Beatles tracks. I'll never forget yeah. the first time I really heard it was when I was listening to the Blue Album Early on in my Beatles fan days, I rented the Blue Album from my local library and was listening. Hey Jude, of course, was on there. And then I heard Revolution and I was thinking, oh man, this is amazing. And I remember my mom saying, oh, this is such a great song. <laughs> so that's that's just a personal Beatles memory I have. But Dan, uh, thoughts on Revolution for you? Um, 
I mean, I love Revolution. It was it's it's an incredible track. It, it foresees where John's going to go in his solo career. Yes. Um, here's where he b- begins to get uh, political. Um, it was it was relevant for the time. Um, it's just as relevant relevant now. I think just as a guitarist, um, that the guitar sound, um, I love the guitar sound. Yeah. And it's really amazing. You know, I'm I'm often, as I've talked about on our Beatles series here, you know, if you just kind of take a step back and you think about all of the great songs at any point in the Beatles career that they were recording and you think about the Beatles white album and how many wonderful songs are on that album. And then you realize, Oh, they also had the hatred revolution single around that time. It defies any type of explanation. We've never seen anything like it before or since mm-hmm. a group with that many songs. And and like I said just a few minutes ago, the White Album discussion is there on our podcast feeds for those that want to hear it. But we gave a glowing review to the White Album. It uh, has a diversity of sounds over the course of the double album. Uh, it's really uh, it's too much to get into here on this episode to go through it all again. But needless to say, we love it. Dan, is there anything on this episode that you just want to add related to the White Album? We talked uh, in depth about it so much that first episode that we did. Right. Um, you know, I just got to say that again, we're we're getting to a point where we're seeing the Beatles, the four Beatles, start to move in different directions. Right. And um, the White Album has always kind of been de- uh, described as more of um, where you're starting to see the four Beatles as individuals right. rather than a cohesive. Um, and where whoever wrote the song, the other three members were kind of playing like session musicians on that person's track. Right. Um, and we're seeing more songs where it's just one Beatle or three Beatles right. um, on a track and not all four. So we're starting to see that that separation kind of happened and we're starting to see the rise of, of, of George as a songwriter. Now. Yes. You know, he had four, uh, I believe four tracks on the white album. He had, um, written many more that were not included, but we're seeing George write songs. And now George starting to get frustrated with only being given a couple of tracks on this album and one track on that album. And, Right. You know, he was starting to become a little bit more prolific. He wanted his stuff out there, and and it wasn't happening for him. And so that's going to really, all of this leads into 1969, and 1969 is going to be um, an interesting year for the for the group. Yes, totally, um, I agree. Yeah, um, and, and I guess now we should get into that year in our discussion, uh, but. You know, recently going back to last year, though, I'll conclude our White Album brief discussion on that tonight by saying uh, we spent a lot of time, you and me, with the White Album over this past year with the 2018 reissue and just listening to the outtakes and so forth. Uh, it It is an epic release. It was an epic release then and it remains so to this day. It sort of has this very, for me at least anyway, the, this unique place in the Beatles canon as being a double album. And there's nothing that the band released that even comes close to being that epic in nature. There may be epic moments on albums, but in terms of just a release with a time for an SAT word, plethora of songs. <laughs> that's the only word I use that for, by the way. Uh, that's the only word I always hear people refer to as an SAT word. Plethora? Plethora. So, But there's, there's so much out there. 